you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. The Bible reading is from Joshua chapter 7, verses 1 to 9, and chapter 8, verses 11 to 17. Joshua 7, 1 to 9. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things, for Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Bethaven, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai, and the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel and they put dust on their heads, and Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all, to give us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan? O Lord, what can I say, when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, and will surround us, and cut off our name from the earth, and what will you do for your great name? Chapter 8, verses 11 to 17. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai, with a ravine between them and Ai. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent that night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place towards the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them, and they pursued Joshua. They were, they were draw, as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, good morning. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Zach, and I do get the joy and pleasure of uh, serving as one of the pastors here at City on a Hill, Brisbane. Um, before we jump into uh, this morning, I just want to uh, 
couple of things, um, well, mainly one thing, uh, but uh, you might have, if you're a parent, you might have seen in the parents' chat, uh, Lisa talked about the nursing room um, out the back there. Um, if you haven't noticed, we have had a boom of uh, new babies, um, which means that we need to have a bit of a space for mums to be able to uh, feed their babies. Uh, and so we wanted to dedicate that room to uh, nursing mums. Um, and so if we can respect that, that'd be great. Um, we're also in the process of getting a new uh, change mat set up, and we're going to set that up in our crèche room um, so that if you've got toddlers or whatever that need to get um, nappies done and whatever, uh, you can go in there, do that. Um, and we also want to encourage you if you're... Um, firstly... I don't care if your kids are going to town. Um, noise in church is good. It uh, means that we're alive. If there's no noise in a church, we need to get out of this church. Um, so glad that there's noise. But if you're like, I can't deal with this, this kid needs a moment, um, then please feel free to uh, go and chill out in the crèche room. Um, you can take your kid in there and hang out with them for a bit um, and just want to make sure that you feel that you can do something that's comfortable, um, uh, but also let's try and prioritise that room uh, behind the curtain out the back there for uh, our nursing mums. Hey, um, let me pray, uh, and then we'll jump into our text for this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is a light to our path, a lamp to our feet. Thank you that it uh, reveals the very depths of who we are, uh, and it points us to your absolute sufficiency uh, for us. We pray that as we read uh, and talk through Joshua today, may, we, uh, may our hearts be uh, pointed to um, the greatest satisfaction that we can possibly have, which is in our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in your name. Amen. And well, uh, when they're teaching us how to write sermons, they teach us to try and find a hook, uh, kind of like a riff in a song, you know, the thing that gets stuck in your head. Uh, they tell us to do that because if you don't get people on the train, people won't come for the journey. Uh, that's kind of how I was taught. Uh, anyways, I tried very hard to find a great hook for chapters 7 and 8 uh, that was interesting, that possibly even made me sound intelligent, but I have completely failed. Uh, it has been a week of torture trying to figure this out, um, and I have not figured it out, but here's the hook I came up with anyway of chapters 7 and 8. <laughs> it's a question. Can we live without the presence of God? Can we live without the presence of God? Before we jump into this, let's have a bit of a recap of the story so far. Joshua is now the leader of Israel after Moses passed away. So far, um, he's doing pretty well. He's, he's been given the same promises from God that he, God will give the people the land, uh, that Joshua just needs to be strong and courageous, not turn to the left or the right from God's word, and God will honour that, bless that, make a way, lead the way, uh, and the people can continue to follow. Um, they've done pretty well up to this point. They've now crossed into to the promised land. They're in Canaan and they've even started eating of the land. Uh, they're starting to actually experience the very promises of God. And then last week we witnessed the walls fall down flat around Jericho. The people obeyed God even when the mission seemed crazy to walk around in borderline silence for seven days and then just yell at the top of their lungs. Um, they obeyed God uh, and they were faithful to his promise that he was giving them the land and the Jericho mission was a great success, not because of the people but because the battle belongs to the Lord, as uh, Sam helped us so clearly to see. 
Today in chapters 7 and 8, the people are going on to the next battle, the next king, the next land to conquer as they continue to obey God's word to remove all of the the sinful, rebellious pagan nations in the land that God was giving them. However, as verse 1 makes clear, it says, "...and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel." Something horrible has taken place. And so our first point this morning, God's righteous anger burns. Verse 1 gives us the context for what unfolds next. And uh, I was reading a few different commentators uh, on this and it was really interesting. You can see uh, a lot of different of a, a difference of opinions um, about why this mission failed. Some commentators want to say that Joshua didn't pray enough or that Joshua acted too hastily. Uh, then other commentators say that Joshua was right to act hastily and that Joshua didn't need to pray again. Uh, so you've got these contrasting views. But the truth of the matter is the people were doomed to failure, not because of something they didn't do, but because of something sinful they did do. So what happened? Well, Achan took some of the devoted things. And Joshua doesn't know this at this point. We're sort of given this uh, prologue in verse 1, which tells us that uh, God is angry with the people of Israel, that Achan had taken the devoted things um, and then verses 2 through to 5 tell us that Joshua, without knowing of this, goes about the battle thinking that they have God on their side. And it should take our minds back to the end of chapter 5 that Sam helped us to see last week when Joshua encounters um, the, the strange man with the sword. Joshua goes to him and he says, hey, are you for us? Are you for our adversaries? And the man says, no, I am the commander of the Lord's armies. In other words, I'm not for your army or for your enemy's armies. I'm for the Lord's armies. I fight God's battles according to God's will and God's ways. And so Joshua is going into this battle fully expecting, he's got no other reason to expect that anything has changed, that the the Lord of God's armies is fighting his battles alongside them. But the people of Israel had broken faith in regard to the devoted things. Turns out that Achan had decided to rebel against God's words. Back in Joshua chapter 6, 18 and 19, it tells us that if they disobey that commandment to uh, keep or take any of those devoted things and not completely follow the law of God on that, then Israel itself will become devoted to destruction. And Joshua 7 verse 12 confirms for us that in God's eyes, Israel had become devoted to destruction. And so, we see that this is what happens when God's presence is not with you. Let's read uh, chapter 7 and let's read verse 2 through to 5. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not have all the people go up, but let two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. See, about 3,000, so about 3,000 men went up there uh, before the man, uh, sorry, from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim, 
and struck them at the descent, and the hearts of the people melted and became as water. They go in full of courage off the back of their previous comprehensive wins. Maybe they're a little bit ambitious, but that's not where the weight of this text sits. It's instead because Israel has sinned. God is not with his people. And the result is a a tragedy on a national scale. 36 young men killed as the army flees in retreat and the hearts of the entire nation now melt. And we should remember those words back from when Rahab was telling the spies that all of Jericho was fearing God and that their hearts had melted. Well, now this is now true of the people of Israel themselves. Those are cricket lovers among us know how the sins of one or two can create a weight of tragedy on the whole nation. I remember in 2018 when Sandpaper Gate happened in South Africa, Australian players, including Captain Steve Smith, Vice Captain Dave Warner, um, were caught ball tampering. It was a moment of national shame. It seemed like even people who didn't care about cricket were carrying guilt and shame about this. The actions of a few had tragic consequences for the entire nation. This is a really, really poor comparison to the seriousness of what has taken place in Joshua. But for you and I in our very comfortable 2023, it's probably the best idea that we can get. But at this point, we have to try and discern what was the cause of such a loss. As I mentioned before, you and I, we we normally want to start looking for where the problem lies in the behaviour that explains the result. So Joshua didn't pray enough or he, he didn't have a solid enough devotional life. More often than not, we want to put the blame on some sort of wrong or misplaced behaviour because we want to we want the blame to be on something that you and I can fix in and of our own strength. However, John Calvin helps us to understand that the Holy Spirit declares that fewness fewness of numbers was not the cause of of the discomfiture and ought not to bear the blame of it. The true cause was the secret counsel of God who meant to show a sign of his anger but allowed the number to be small in order that the loss might be less serious. It's obvious from where the weight of this text lies, the issue is not with Joshua's not doing something, but what had been done in rebellion against God's holy law. Coming to verses 10 and 12, God speaks directly to Joshua. The Lord said to Joshua, Get up, why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned, they have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them, they have taken some of the devoted things, they have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you, devote, unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. We might be a bit thrown by hearing God tell Joshua to stop praying. But it wasn't Joshua's devotional life that was the issue. It was sin entering the people of God, the entire nation, through the actions of Achan. God's presence cannot be where sin lies. 
God says to Joshua, get up. Deal with it. And church, if we want God's presence leading the way and making a way, then sin cannot abide. God's presence and sin cannot coexist. God cannot be with the people while there is sin in the people. Just as God cannot abide sin in the land, he cannot abide sin in the people. As we saw in chapter 6 in Jericho, what are they doing? They're, they're wiping the sinful nations off the face of the planet. A bit later in chapter 8, what are they doing? They're, they're wiping the sinful nations off the face of the planet. God is removing sin from the land that God's people, God himself, is going to inhabit. It's the same for the very people of God. God's presence will not inhabit a sinful land. God's presence will not inhabit a sinful people. This is a fearsome message to hear and see in this text. If you're a Christian here today, you know the weight of this text because we know our own sin. We know our own wrongs. We We know how often we fall short of God's holiness. We know that when we stand before the throne of God for judgment, we will face this same scenario that we're about to read about in verses 14 to 18. Each of us will be called to stand before the judgment throne. Could you imagine this scene? Verses 14 to 18, they describe how Joshua and the people were to go about uncovering who had sinned, what, was, what had taken place, how had God's law been transgressed. Could you imagine being Achan or his wife during this moment, knowing what you've taken, knowing that you've hidden it, knowing the laws that you've broken, but almost wondering if you're going to get away with it. But then the next day, the tribe of Judah is chosen. Maybe it's okay. It's a big tribe. But then the clan of Zerahites is chosen. Maybe it's still okay. It's a decent-sized clan. Maybe somebody else took things from this clan. Then the household of your grandfather is chosen. Surely Achan's wife is starting to elbow him now, going, Achan, what have we done? And finally, man by man. And God reveals that to the people that it was Achan. Wasn't supposed to cry at this point, it was coming later. Christian, we will face this same terrifying moment before the judgment throne. But because of God's grace, when our name is is called, Jesus himself will stand up and say, there is no more condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. For the accuser no longer has grounds for our accusation. As Charles Spurgeon says, we need have no fear of the judgment to come when we know that we are in Christ For who fears to enter a just court when he knows that by the highest authority he has already been cleared? How complete the Christian's safety. 
What a wondrous truth it is to know that Christ has taken our condemnation. We can stand before the Father of glory in Christ's righteousness. If you're here with us this morning and you don't yet trust Jesus, maybe you're brought here with a friend or you found us on the internet and you thought you would join us today, thank you for coming. Thank you for being here and checking out Jesus, checking out church. I want to encourage you to hear the warning in this story today. God does not tolerate sin. But in Jesus, God has made a way for you to be made right. Classic text, John chapter 3, 16 to 18, clearly tells us that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. Friend, don't follow Achan's hard hearted ways, thinking he'd get away with it. Believe Christ's perfect work on your behalf, that he lived the life that you and I cannot live, perfectly according to God's ways, that he died sacrificially upon the cross, the death that you and I rightly deserve for our wrongs before God, that God raised Jesus to life three days later, victorious over sin and death, that we also might be raised to life in Christ. Coming back to Joshua 7, Achan does finally confess. The people search his tent, they find the devoted things, but now we witness the seriousness and the severity of God's judgment on sin. Church, God's presence cannot coexist with sin. This, um, this final scene in Joshua 7 had me in tears in a cafe a couple of weeks back. It's probably going to put me in tears now. Let's just all admit that and be ready. But let's uh, read together chapter 7, verse 24 and 25. So Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Accor. And Joshua said, why did you bring this trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burnt him with fire and stoned him with stones. I think, we're, um, I think we're meant to have mixed feelings about this scene. There is a, a heart-wrenching reality of what sin does to us. It ends in our death. But sin also has dire consequences for our families and our community. So we cannot ignore that Achan's sin also led to the death of his entire family, let alone the 36 young soldiers who died in that first attempt in the battle. 
men who were meant to go home to their families after that battle. But we should also rejoice because sin has been exposed, it has been dealt with and we shouldn't miss the note of church discipline here. As a community of faith, as a church family, we are called to love one another to the point where we hold one another accountable to the sins, to the wrongs that we are committing before God. To encourage one another to bring those sins in confession to each other and before our most holy God. We see it time and time again throughout the scripture that when we throw ourselves upon the mercy of God, God is merciful and gracious to us. But how often do we hold that sin hidden in our own hearts? There's a a great illustration of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul, writing to this church in Corinth, he knows of a situation uh, where a man is with his father's wife. Um, Let your adult's mind figure that out for the kids in the room. But in verses... Six to eight. It says this, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In other words, sin is something that ruins everything. Just a little bit of undealt with sin over here is something that continues to bubble away and fester and rot out whatever it's a part of. That's true for our own lives. If we continue to let sin bubble and fester on the inside of us, if it's not brought out into the light, brought out into the open, brought to one another, uh, brought to our Father in heaven, the God of all mercies, if we just continue to live in it, either expecting or thinking that we're going to get away with it, thinking that we can manage to live our week in whatever sin it might be, but turn up to Sunday with our Sunday face on and everything is totally fine. Church, I want to encourage you this morning that you're living the lowest level of Christian life possible. We have been given all that we need in Christ, in His Spirit, in His Word, to live completely free from the power and the chains of sin. We've also got this duty to one another, though, in the church. We have great opportunities in our gospel communities when we break into crews to really open up with one another, to confess things that we're struggling with, that we're wrestling with, sins that we are trying to put to death. And knowing that our brothers and sisters in Christ are hearing that, they're praying for us, they're pointing us to the sufficiency of the mercy that we have through Jesus Christ. You know, in a moment we're going to take communion together and this is when we remember that Christ gave his body by dying on a cross and his blood was spilt for you and I. Christ died 
so that we might live. And Christ was raised to victorious life, that we might live victoriously over sin. We have been given all that we need in the gospel, in God's saving grace to fight sin. If it was up to you and I to win the battles ourselves, we would also end up like Achan does at the end of chapter 7, buried under a pile of judgment rocks. Thanks be to God for the gospel. Thanks be to God for chapter 8, point 2, God's righteous anger turns. There's a really interesting contrast between chapter 7 and 8. Chapter 7 opens with the words, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. But look at the wonder of how chapter 8 opens. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. How gracious and generous is our God. We see four amazing things in these opening two verses. Firstly, God speaks to his people. Church, I don't know, I don't know how to communicate this well, and I'm going to figure it out this year. But do you know how blessed we are to even have God's word? God was not obligated to give us his word. The Bible is a gracious gift that God gave to you and I, that we might know him and be equipped and be given everything that we need to fight the battle, the good fight of sin, but to also make known to the world around us the wonder and truth of the gospel. God has written it down, a a timeless message of the good news. He's put it into our hands. Thanks be to God for the, the men and women who gave up their lives, literally died so that the Bibles could be printed. Thanks be to God for those who are working around the world right now to translate God's word into all sorts of different languages, often at the peril of their own death. God is so kind that he speaks to his people. He also gives the people courage. He tells Joshua, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Why? Not because Joshua's got it all figured out. Not because Joshua's got his 5, 10, 20-year plan, his life's all sorted. Not because his bank account is flush. Not because his car is flash. Not because his house is nice. But because God's presence is back with Joshua. God is with Joshua. And God gives the people a plan. He, chapter 7, we, we don't see a plan. We just see a hey, it looks like we can do this with just a few numbers, so let's go have a crack. Chapter 8, the contrast. God gives the people a plan. And God gives the people the plunder. The real foolishness of Achan's greed now really stands out. Our God is a generous God. I'm not saying that you're going to get rich. I'm not saying that you're going to get healthy. But what I am saying is that God owns all things. 
and they are completely at his sovereign disposal. How ridiculous that Achan would break God's law just to steal a couple of things, to have a few little niceties that he can hide under his tent, probably never really be used because of the fear and shame of having those things hidden under his tent. And here is God saying to the people, when you take the land of Ai, devote to destruction all the people, but take the plunder and the spoil for yourselves. Church, we should be astounded by the generosity of our God. So we see in chapter 8, the people listen, the people obey, God's presence leads them and makes a way. Their victory is complete. Joshua remains obedient to God's word, holding out the javelin as instructed, which you can read about. Israel's Victory is comprehensive, not because Israel or Joshua came up with this amazing plan, but because God's presence is with Joshua. God's presence is with the people. Now, sadly, this story ends with two piles of stones. It was only meant to end with one. Church, God is serious about sin. His presence will not tolerate it. But his people are greatly blessed when God's presence is with us. Thanks be to God that Christ has clothed us with his righteousness, given us his word, given us his spirit, granting us all that we need to live for Jesus. To wrap us up this morning, chapter 8 ends in a bit of a weird way. We've been reading battle and strategy narrative for the last two chapters, but now we're sort of just like, bang, plugged into this worship service. We're also subtly in a different part of the land. Uh, And Joshua is reading the entire law of Moses, including the blessing and the curse. Now, this seems odd, it seems out of place, but when we realise how these last few chapters fit together, it's incredibly encouraging, encouraging and helpful. So chapter 5 through 8 actually form an intentional block of material that shows us an important theme. Chapter 5 introduces this section with covenant commitments. We think back to chapter 5, there was circumcision and there was the Passover. Chapter 6 shows a successful mission of Jericho. Chapter 7, in the face of covenant unfaithfulness, the AI mission fails. Chapter 8 with the unfaithfulness dealt with, the AI mission is a success. And then verse 30 to 35 of chapter 8 round out this whole block with Joshua renewing the covenant. This helps us to see an overall lesson in this block for the people of God. Covenant obedience is more important than military victory. Church, God is more interested in our trusting him, depending upon his presence than about the mission going forward. He wants our hearts completely, our minds completely, our whole bodies completely. And this is relevant for our church because we have a strong mission to know Jesus and make Jesus known in Brisbane, in Australia, in all the world through planting uh, 50 churches across 10 cities 
know, visions like that, it can be easy just to get on the bus and we just steam ahead and whoever gets rolled under that bus or whatever character traits of us seem to be ignored or who, if, they're, if they're seeing people come to Jesus, if the church is growing, then does it really matter if they're a little bit off in this area of their life? Yes. God is more concerned with covenant faithfulness than with mission victory or mission success. Church, if our church stayed at this size for the rest of its life, but we were thoroughly and absolutely committed to knowing Jesus deeply, to depending on him completely, to trusting in him absolutely, then God is satisfied. I'm incredibly encouraged. Just got back from a conference in Adelaide with Acts 29, which is a church planting network right around the world. And you know, there are some really successful pastors and preachers and teachers and church planters, and they're incredible men and women of God who are, who are working in these areas. And it's real, I found it really easy to sit there and just feel super intimidated, like, man, like if my church isn't 300 by next year, then I'm, what a failure I am. And then you come point blank to the truth of this text. God is less concerned with the things of our lives, our human measurements for what equals success. And he is so much more concerned for his measurement of success, which is will you and I trust Jesus? To finish this out this morning, let's hear the word of the Lord together. I'm going to read Romans 5, 1 to 11. Church, this is the good news, the gospel. This is what we have to be on about. Paul writing, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope in the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Church, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we have peace with you because of your Son, Jesus. Because he has paid the price for our sin. Thank you that he took the right punishment for our sins upon himself that we might live. We have all sinned against you, Father. And we all deserve the same punishment as Achan. Thank you, Jesus, that you took that upon yourself and have offered us life. 
Holy Spirit, help us to live for King Jesus today. Help us to flee from sin, to reject the idols of our heart and to live freely in the presence that leads us into all life. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.